Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. And if you checked it out, please give it a good rating. It's a wonderful podcast. Water is one of the biggest driving forces of life on Earth. It's been incredibly influential in human history from the time we were hunter-gatherers looking for fresh sources of water to the uh, uh, agricultural revolution and building bigger and bigger cities eventually having plumbing uh, the way that it changed sanitation uh, irrigation and what is the what's the future of water are we going to have enough of this stuff how can we make more clean fresh water i just listened to a very interesting episode alchemy turning milk into water sustainable water management this episode is all about this very candid conversation about water coffee industrial practices sustainable value chain and social responsibilities with uh this man carlos uh galli who Uh, whose job it is to make sure that the biggest food and beverage company in the world is leading a healthy and sustainable lifestyle. Incredibly important stuff. You guys are into science. You guys are into learning, caring about the world, caring about our future. This podcast is for you. Check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. Welcome to Here We Are, everybody. I just wanted to give you a quick update on uh, on the show and how the show's going. I did. I got a lot of positive feedback from you guys about the live show and people wanting more live shows and thinking that was the best. Um, I am trying to make that happen. I have I have one or two basically locked down um, now, but I'm trying to figure out other places to do it. Um, and just the main concern right now is having the ability to market it to enough people in a given city. And so I'm working on things on my end to figure out how to get that done. And um, in the meantime, if you guys want more live shows, the biggest thing you can do and the biggest thing to support the podcast in general is just tell a friend or coworker or somebody about the show. And the more listeners I have, the easier it will be to explore a lot more options like that and um get bigger guests and everything else so keep spreading the word for me i appreciate all of the nice comments and reviews and everything else and enjoy today's podcast are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm talking with Assistant Professor of Psychology and Director of the Biology of Parenting Lab at Chapman University. Jennifer Han Holbrook is joining me. Hello, Jennifer. Jen, how are you? Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. What is the, uh, uh, the Biology of Parenting Lab? Well, really, we study brain-body connections in the 
uh, in pregnant women and in the postpartum period. And I do a little bit of research with dads too. So it's a really interesting time to be looking at kind of how hormones affect psychology, but also how psychology can affect hormones because there's so much going on both for men and women. So for example, estradiol um, increases a thousand times more than kind of what is any that? other time. It's a hormone that's been linked. Um, estradiol. Estradiol. Mm-hmm. That's a new one to me. Yeah. So it's related to a lot of sexual behaviors, especially in women. Um, and, um, some psychological traits like being willing to go on a date and things like that. So, um, it's a thousand times higher during pregnancy and then plummets during lactation. So you get like a lot of these roller coasters and hormones in women, but also in men. So in men over the course of pregnancy, there's some evidence to suggest that like their prolactin goes up, which is really, um, a hormone, at least in animals, that's been linked to paternal behavior. Mm. So there's all these really cool ways to study how kind of the mom and dad's relationship affect their hormone levels, how their hormone levels affect their relationships. And um, I really am interested in lactation, which is its own hormonal kind of brew. Um Oh, well, just just to go back for a second, I, because I'm a, a little bit confused, I understand why why guys, when when they're about to have a baby, would want this tough actin prolactin stuff. But why why would women want a hormone that's making them want to go on dates more while they're pregnant? Right, that's weird. Right. Um, but there's three different types of estradiol. So actually, esterone is the one that increases over pregnancy, and we really don't know. Um, what that does, what psychological functions it has. Um, estradiol increases too, but it's really not the main estrogen at that time point. Um, so we're not sure. That's the whole reason I'm really interested in this research. Mm. Um, certainly in lactating moms, so in breastfeeding women, um, you see fertility suppression. And they do have decreased estradiol and decreased sex drive. So that seems to be kind of a clear functional story um right this uh, it's my understanding that breastfeeding the the way our hunter-gatherer ancestors did it was a natural form of birth control and it was kind of there weren't enough resources to just be cranking out kids one after another so what what like three-year period or something like that typically in in our ancestral past yeah. So, I mean, there's some, there's obviously a lot of variation. Um, so the interbirth interval, um, somewhere between two years and five years, typically, it depends on really the amount of fat a mom has, which is kind of a signal to her body, uh, to the amount of resources, resources she would have because lactation is actually super calorie intensive. It's actually way more calorie intensive than actually gestating a fetus. So, you actually burn between 300 and 750 calories a day when you're breastfeeding. So you need to have a lot of reserves on hand. So the lactation amnuric method or LAM is actually a type of birth control that even women can use today. Um, but you have to like have super frequent lactation. Um, so a lot of breastfeeding bouts, you can't like um, not breastfeed for six hours and it doesn't last very long in um, kind of the populations we see today because we are so um, well-nourished. 
Whereas mm. in other cultures that would be living more hand to mouth in terms of subsistence, um, you see lactation amenorrhea, even with like much more limited breastfeeding lasting years. And it's, it's kind of my understanding that, that, um, in it, well, but you know, why don't you just tell me how, how hunter gatherer societies that we see like modern day hunter gatherer, well, probably not too many modern day these days, but, nope. but it, at least in the past that we were able to study a little bit, how breastfeeding kind of worked, because I kind of, I get the impression that it was that babies were just kind of latched on almost all the time and could suckle whenever they wanted to. And then as they're older and toddlers, they would kind of just run up like anytime they needed a drink. And it was just this very casual thing that was happen- happening much more frequently than, say, every six hours or whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, I think parenting in general has changed a ton. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way we parent today and the kind of ecological conditions we parent in are so different, but lactation is definitely one of them. So there's so many ways that it differs for one, um, basically without access to clean water and formula, you have the choice if you're living in a hunter gatherer society of breastfeeding or having your infant die, Mm -hmm. because it's really a source of clean fluid and perfect nutrition that you can carry with you all through the jungle, even, or not the jungle, wherever, uh, whatever context you're living in. Um, and so you had to breastfeed the typical age of weaning for humans. So the special species, typical age of weaning kind of what infants were designed to expect is two and a half years, two and a half years. So that sounds really long compared to breastfeeding frequency, um, breastfeeding duration today. Um, so in the U S the average, um, time a woman breastfeeds her baby is somewhere around between two and four months, depending on, um, kind of the population you're looking at. Um, so we're really seeing huge declines in the kind of time a woman spends in the lactational period. And I really think that's having huge impacts on women's health. So Mm. it's estimated that um, women actually spent more time lactating in natural fertility populations than they did normally cycling or having, you know, kind of periods as we normally think about it. So women were most of the time, if you had six births and you breastfed for an average of two and a half years, that's, you know, a decade, that's more than a decade of lactation. Um, so you're getting exposed to different hormones. I've been studying a lot of the psychological adaptations that seem to go along with breastfeeding, um, to help facilitate maternal care, um, infant defense, um, parenting relationships with the father. So I think it's a very underexplored area. Another really important difference is the frequency of breastfeeding. So if you ask a pediatrician, how often a, woman should breastfeed her child, he or she is going to tell you it's between like two and four hours, depending on the age of the infant. When you look at some natural fertility populations, let's say like the Kung San or the Ache, they will be breastfeeding an average of once every 15 minutes. Um, Mm -hmm. And so breastfeeding bouts, even to, you know, obviously there's tons of variability in that, um, tons, but really the infant has access to the breast all day. They use it for 
um, light snack. They use it to soothe the infant. They use it to entertain the infant while they're doing something else. Um, and so it's really, um, the breast is really a great tool to help with parenting. And it's just seen as like a normal part of life. You know, you'll see a woman kind of drinking, uh, getting inebriated and hanging out with her infant, just breastfeeding. And that's normal. And so it's, it's part of, um, just part of everyday life. There's a great, um, there's a really great anthropology. Um, an anthropologist went to Fiji and was asking, um, you know, was asking, uh, how do you feel about, you know, women breastfeeding in your culture? And the Fijian said, well, you know, it's fine. And they said, well, how do you guys feel about it in America? And the anthropologist was like, well, you know, breastfeeding breasts are sexual and like they, you know, turn men on. And so we just think it's kind of weird sometimes to see a woman breastfeeding. Um, and the Fijian said, so do the men like to pretend that they're babies? Because it was, that's yeah. how they viewed it. Like hmm. not as, it, it was a kind of a practical organ first right. rather than kind of a sexual organ. So strip clubs over there would be just just being patronized by babies. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. Like, Ooh, look at all that milk. Uh-huh. Um, so I want to go back uh, for a minute to something you kind of um, uh, glossed by. Um, what uh, other other than just filling the stomach? What um, what else is going on with breastfeeding? So glad you asked. <laughs> so much stuff. So um, some of the more exciting work um, I'm trying to do right now is looking at this concept of lactational programming in humans. So the infant's um, uh, hormone system, endocrine system, is really kind of premature when it comes out of when the fetus comes out of the body. So a lot of these hormones that we kind of live and breathe on. Um, they are not very good at making them. And so actually the mom through her milk is providing information, these hormones to the infant. So there's some work in rhesus macaques, for example, that, um, Katie Hind has done and, and colleagues, um, she's at Har she was at Harvard and now at ASU where she found, um, that basically the level of cortisol in a mother's milk helped to give the infant information about kind of the mom's rank in the social hierarchy, but then ah. that also affected the phenotype. So how the infant, how big the infant got, the kind of temperament the infant had, so some of the work in my in, in mm. at Chapman that I'm doing in collaboration with Laura Glenn is basically just seeing if we can find these same patterns in humans, and we do. That's so I just did a study looking at cortisol exposure and infant growth. Can can we just explain this for a little bit, just to uh, I, I want to make sure that I at least have it clear in my mind, so that my listeners do as well. So. So cortisol is a stress hormone and often um, in primates where there's this kind of clear um, dominance hierarchy structure, the lower you are on the totem pole, the more stress you're under and therefore you have higher cortisol. And so if you're a baby and you're receiving more amounts of cortisol, there's maybe some sort of epigenetic effect that is perhaps or who knows what the mechanism is that's driving it that's cueing in the baby and some non-conscious way into its understanding of status 
Yes, I think that's the theory. Excellent summary. (laughs) I will add a few caveats to that. Is that that's absolutely this is my first time that I'm hearing this. Okay, so this is very interesting. Cool. Well, I think of it as like a fourth trimester Mm -hmm. through which kind of maternal endocrine system direct and immune system directly impacts the physiology of the infant. So we we think of three trimesters of pregnancy. I think we should really think about four. Or um, in humans, maybe even five. Yeah, I mean, right. we, we come out we come out so prematurely um, no. compared to most species. But with regard to cortisol, so it gets a really bad rap as this stress hormone, but it's absolutely necessary for metabolic processes in the body. If you don't have any cortisol, you're dead. You mm-hmm. need it. And cortisol um, actually has been found to also be blunted, so lower in, for example, infants that experience early life trauma or even adults that experience early life trauma. And it seems like we're now using the term like cortisol dysregulation and these kind of a a thing. So um, it's more that, for example, if you can't have a proper response, a healthy stress response, so you're not responding, you're not recovering your cortisol level, you can't go up and you can't go down. So you seem to just be more flat and maybe you're a little higher than normal. That seems to be more, um, at least the literature I've seen lately, Um, So it's not necessarily a stress hormone. It seems to be an indices of um, especially your reactivity and the diurnal rhythm you have over the day. So you're supposed to be high in the morning to kind of get you going and then low in the evening Mm. so you can chill out and go to sleep. And it's those people who don't show that typical pattern there. They're lower in the morning and higher in the afternoon, right? They're not showing this normal up, go get them in the morning and decline in the afternoon. So um, that are that tend to be dysregulated. They're the people who have depression. They're the people who have PTSD. Mm. Um, those are the people who've experienced early life trauma. Um, so I will say that about cortisol. It's not necessarily a bad, you know, it gets a bad rap, but. Mm. Well, now I'm wondering what my levels are because I suffer from depression. I have a very hard time getting out of bed in the morning right. and I, I stay up all night. Um, I think that that's definitely, I, you know, you I, would I, be a perfect subject. Hmm. So. As soon as you have kids, let me know. Um, so um, I'm, I'm curious. I don't mean to get away from your work, um, but does that or, or maybe not be? I'm not sure. Does is cortisol, does that have to do with forming memories as well? Uh, do you have any idea? I no. don't know. That's fine. I'm sorry. I'm just curious if it would, because maybe it would be like emphasizing moments of salience or something. I, I don't know. Um, maybe, never yeah. Mind. I mean... I don't know. Um, an interesting question. It doesn't matter. So, so continue. And then, as far as so, there's cortisol, and then there's also you study a lot of oxytocin as well. Like I know you did a lot of work with my friend Marty Hazelton, who recommended you for the podcast. Um, can you talk a little bit about that effect as well? Um, it, yeah, because, and so, then I, and then kind of after after we set that up, I'd like to get a little more into the mismatches of of modern day. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So, um, oxytocin has been dubbed kind of the love hormone, mm-hmm. and just like you know, cortisol is a stress hormone. But uh, cortisol must must be pretty bitter about that bad rap yeah i mean i think so <laughs> i think that if we had a more nuanced understanding um i think the data would 
kind of clarify itself because at first people were just scratching their heads like, what the heck is going on? Cortisol is supposed to be a stress hormone. So why would this person who's really stressed out have lower cortisol? But um, you asked me about oxytocin. So I've done some work. Oxytocin is really important for parenting behavior. In fact, one of kind of the reasons why it's related to social bonding, so higher levels of oxytocin or having people sniff oxytocin up their nose increases trust and increases kind of motivation to affiliate specifically with members of your in-group. And it can also facilitate parenting behavior. But looking at the phylogenetic kind of history of oxytocin, it's a smooth muscle contractor that's really related to um, birth and lactation. So it helps the contractions during labor and it also helps milk ejection. Um, And so because those two things co-varied so much with the need for kind of maternal behavior in order to keep, you know, the infants alive, to keep the, the Mm. juvenile um, juveniles alive, it kind of then um, oxytocin then started to have, these psychological functions as well to kind of act on the medial preoptic area to make you be motivated to mother and these kind of things. Ah, so there was nothing inherently like bonding no. originally. Well, with... yeah. And so then time, you know, as right. juvenile periods got longer, I mean, we share like oxytocin with like reptiles. So keep that in mind. Right. Right. So, um, it first started out as a smooth muscle contractor, you know, mm. that's just, you know, so then it evolved, but now, you know, as juvenile periods got longer and longer, as our brains got bigger and bigger, we needed kind of long-term bonding as, as juvenile periods got longer and longer, we co-opted the same mechanism, the same circuitry in the brain, the same hormones to also facilitate pair bonding. So for example, Oxytocin is a smooth muscle contractor, so it's really important for orgasm and ejaculation. And isn't that just perfect? Because wouldn't you need to bond, or sometimes you need to bond, <laughs> hopefully you want to bond um, with uh, you know, your partner. So it's this really interesting, that's why parenting is so cool, and especially mothering and especially lactation is so neat, because you're really getting to look at... Um, kind of what the hormone was first evolved to do, I think. Um, And all these other things that it's doing, like I've done some work looking at um, the effect of oxytocin on kind of your feelings of closeness with um, religious figures. And so I think that the same mental circuitry that's kind of leading to these social relationships, social bonding, um, those are kind of co-opted when we think about... um, religious figures. So like we measured oxytocin levels and just how close people felt with Jesus. This was a Christian sample, actually a Mormon sample at um, Brigham Young University. Mm. And so what we found is that people who had higher levels of oxytocin had higher levels of self-reported, uh, self-reported spirituality. And we just recently um, did a study where we had people sniff oxytocin up their nose. So we did an um, internasal Uh, administration. We gave them oxytocin or a placebo. And then we just asked them, Hey, how close do you feel with God? How much do you believe in angels? These kind of things. And we were able to kind of see again, a relationship between oxytocin and spiritual belief. And that's not something that's published yet or peer reviewed. Um, So obviously take that with a grain of salt, but at least in my mind really helps to 
underlying this idea that really we're using this ancient circuitry designed to facilitate kind of pair bonding and maternal bonding with her infant and caregiving when we're using these very new, um, very kind of abstract, um, not abstract, this ability to kind of use this different reasoning system to imagine or, or not imagine. Maybe it's, you know, we're maybe, bonding with the universe. Or bonding with the universe. Right. So. Yeah. Oh, that's, uh, that's cool that you can huff God. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you can huff closeness with God. maybe. Um, so is, is that like, a, how do you get your hands on oxytocin? Is that something that only scientists are? Do you think people in the future are going to be getting these little uh, oxytocin nasal sprays? Yeah. Or so, I mean, Paul Zach has this amazing TED talk where he just says, like, this is basically, you know, the cure all. It's really important. It's going to, you're going to be sniffing oxytocin when you're anxious because it's um, an anti anxiety. It helps basically facilitate parasympathetic control, um, vagus nerve, yada, 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 whatever. Um, but basically you don't need to know the details, but, um, it was kind of thought to be this cure-all. So they started giving it to people, um, with autism, for example, and -hmm. it has some, um, benefits at least, uh, from what I've seen in terms of helping people with autism recognize the emotions of others. Um, but it's had, it can have, um, really, uh, backfire as well. So Jennifer Bartz did this amazing study where she gave, um, people, uh, with borderline personality disorder, um, oxytocin or placebo, and then just measure their social relationship. So borderline personality, um, disorder for people don't know is basically, um, a personality in which you, they either love you or they absolutely hate you. And they have these really, really brittle social relationships where it's just very hard for them to kind of have these lasting pair bonds, you know, cause in your relationships, there's always going to be some time that they, excuse my language, like piss you off. Right. And so you kind of have to be able to take tit for tat and, and, um, you know, forgive that person and, and create that bond, but they really have trouble doing that. They also tend to be, um, self-centered, um, and they're going very, to choose not to comment on that. Okay. Of my exes right now okay. <laughs> they're all yeah. wonderful people deep down. And, okay. Um, <laughs> but um, I think I have perhaps seen right. this. <laughs> so here's where it backfired. So they gave these people oxytocin up their nose or not. And it actually just enhanced their need to affiliate. And then it enhanced, when that didn't work out, enhanced aggressive behavior. So these people were actually more aggressive. Mm. And what now kind of we think, at least Jennifer Bartz has argued, is that it's not like oxytocin is a love hormone, but oxytocin makes the social world much more salient. And by that, I just mean... You know, there's a lot of things that you could, your mind could be thinking about and you could be attending to, you could be hungry, you could, you know, um, be horny, you could be, um, thinking about your career, you know, and, um, but that oxytocin when it's high kind of makes the social world more salient, makes you want to affiliate, um, makes those cues, uh, come to the top of your priority list. So if that's true and you have kind of this dysfunctional um, way of relating to people, it can actually enhance that. Um, So we have new data, again, that's not published yet, um, but we 
looked at um, 227 women. We looked at polymorphisms in the oxytocin receptor gene. So this is basically, there's differences in the genetics um, between people of basically their oxytocin receptor gene, which is kind of where the rubber hits the road in terms of oxytocin. Mm. Um, so your levels could be the same as, say, the person sitting next to you of oxytocin in your bloodstream or in your brain. But there seems to be some people for which kind of that oxytocin level either binds to the receptor better or just has, let's say, a stronger effect. So previous studies had shown that kind of people who had um, what's called the G allele or G allele carriers instead of A allele carriers were more likely to um, be sensitive to people's needs, exactly well, better parenting, like a lot of the things we see with oxytocin levels in general. Um, so we found that it was actually a double-edged sword. So peep women who had the G allele, so right, this is supposed to be the love hormone. Um, if they had bad support from the baby's father, they were actually more likely to get postpartum depression. If they have good support from the baby's father, they're less likely to get postpartum depression. For the A allele carriers, they won either way. So it wasn't like they were just less affected um, by the quality of the social support they were getting from the baby's father. So oxytocin is a really, really interesting hormone, I think, because it just is involved in so many facets of our social relationships. Um, I, you've given me a lot to think about. Um, I didn't, that, that's a lot of stuff that I had never heard about, about oxytocin. So it, here's a few things, a few thoughts that I had. Um, one, so, so it's kind of increasing the, the, or at least in these um, personality disorders, it's increasing the need for social support, not necessarily the ability um, to get it, kind of? Is it is it making people also more receptive toward that? It seems like, it, it sounds to me almost like, there because there's this big difference between um, like introspection and what, what's the opposite of introspection, like looking out? Let's call it extrospect. Sure. Extrospection. Uh, extrospect. So, you know, it's hard to like, it's hard to pay attention to what someone's saying if you're daydreaming. Um and if oxytocin's kind of forcing you to, just with the idea of spiritual, and it's kind of making you bond with the external, not just people, but the, but just the external, the the universe, whatever it might be, is it is it kind of forcing extrospection in in a way? I don't know. I mean, I think we're really still speculating as to why oxytocin is showing these seemingly like has two faces, you know, that it's related to parenting sensitivity, but it's also related to like in-group chauvinism. So it, it like makes you dislike out-group members more. It, it mm. seems to be facilitating whatever motivations you have to affiliate, affiliate, it might just be intensifying those. You know, some people, you know, really, really want to make a friend or really, really want a relationship to work. Let's say they're two different things. So you, you have this desire to affiliate but it's not enhancing your skills to affiliate and it's only enhancing your desire to affiliate with kind of people you're already affiliating with or people you already want to mm. affiliate with. It doesn't necessarily make you want to, 
go out, you know, and, and, you know, do a Woodstock type of thing. It makes you want to people you already care about. Um, it makes you want to defend the people you care about. So some of the work I did, um, some of the worst first work on that, um, was done by DeDrew. And I mean, I think I, my work was related to that. Just finding that if you put, make people sniff oxytocin up their nose or not, you actually get them to be more aggressive towards an outgroup member. So they like their in-group more and they're willing to kind of punish outgroup members more. And I also found for lactating moms who again have, will have higher oxytocin in general, they're more likely to give a angry, annoying sound burst to somebody messing with their baby um, than a formula feeding mom who's presumably going to have less oxytocin, but also just a, a, a woman without children. So it seems to kind of have this mama bear effect, I've called it. Um, right. We, well, we, uh, last week we talked with, uh, with your husband, Colin, about threat perception, and you've done some work with, with um, uh, mothering and, and breastfeeding, um, altering um, perceived threats in, in that same sort of direction. Mm-hmm. Um, is it the same sort of where, where if you, what is it? If you have more oxytocin, you're, you're seeing potential threats as like larger in size or more dominant or more um, threatening or. What? I don't know. I mean, I don't know enough about it to really speak t- at that level of granularity. Um, I guess. What, what work did you do on? Uh, can you tell me about your work on, yeah, on that particular subject? So, um, in mammals, and especially in species where kind of you have these really long juvenile periods, and especially in species where you have these really long lactation periods, there's something really terrible that happens, um, which is basically male infanticide, where males who are not the infant's father will come in and, and kill the infants to help the mother become fertile again sooner. So again, we talked about lactation amnorrhea. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not really great, you know, even if you usurp the old dominant male, if all the females in, um, you know, that you now presumably might have access to are not going to be fertile for two years. So we see this in um, a lot of other primates. Um, there's some evidence in humans. It's very rough. So living with a stepfather is one of the most... Uh, yeah, we've, dangerous. We've um, talked about this quite yeah. a bit on the program. So that's one of the reasons. And also um, because basically when you have these long juvenile periods and you need kind of other people to help you raise your kids, it also increases competition between women. So, you know, do you want some other woman basically having a child um, that could presumably, you know, take the resources from your children, from the father, especially in polygamous societies, right? So we also see kidnapping and abuse of infants in other primate species. And there's some evidence of that in humans, but we really don't like to look at that part of our kind of phylogenetic lineage. So to get to the I'm, point, I'm fine to have a, a reason to explain why I don't like other people's children. Yeah, <laughs> well, I don't totally, have any children totally. Myself, and males but. generally have much lower tolerance for infants right. than, yeah, you're not a fan. 
Um, I, I mean, whatever. I, I get I it. Know, I, I know. They have big eyes and their heads are too big. It's adorable. <laughs> I get it. Okay. But, but I don't um, like hate them or anything. Okay. It's just like, I'll hold your baby for about five minutes. So and then you I'm asked done. me about lactation. All right. All right. My, Back on track. Okay. So I had to give that preamble okay. because basically what I think in many other species, the proximal mediator of kind of defense of the infant. So moms are fierce. Like you look at a rat who's lactating. If a male comes in, who's, you know, a usurper or some, you know, an, a strange male comes in, she will fight to the death, Mm -hmm. you know? So there's different types of aggression. Um, a lot of, you know, posturing aggression, bar fighting aggression where the man, you know, they don't really, they're not expecting to kill each other. It's more about dominance displays. This yeah, this is, is like of, if you're out for a hike, the I mean, the last bear that you want to run into is a mama bear, you know, right. protecting her cub. So the caveat to that is right. a lactating mama bear. Don't mm. get between a lactating mama bear and her cubs. So some species, when, for example, you cut the cord so that she can't respond to lactational stimulus and get like prolactin and oxytocin released, she's not going to be as defensively aggressive mm. of her infant. And I think it's a really nice time match adaptation, especially you think about um, two and a half years of, let's say it's the time in the infant's lifespan when they're most vulnerable to these type of attacks, because both from women, because it's most intense to try and right have all the childcare you need to raise them, but also from strange males, right, who may potentially try to harm your infant. I'm not saying this is a conscious thing. I'm not saying this is necessarily even an adaptation for humans, but it might just be kind of a holdover from the evolutionary history of that, where you're seeing lactation increasing kind of protective aggression or what we call defensive aggression. So we basically had really like a really bitchy woman. You meet them in the lab they're just horrible to you. They don't even say hi. They're rolling their eyes. They're laughing when you were t- they're told basically you're going to be competing with this woman on a reaction time task. And, you know, just keep it interesting. The winner of each task will be able to deliver a perfectly safe, though very annoying, sound blast to the competitor. Then you put basically um, women in separate rooms. The uh, bitchy woman was actually just a confederate who was a research assistant that we trained. And then we put everybody, breastfeeding moms, formula feeding moms, and um, and uh, what we call nulliparous women, so women who don't have kids, in a room with a computer. And now they're thinking they're competing with that horrible woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and the woman just starts blasting them for no reason, like putting tens out of tens and blasting them for the full time period. So it's just, she's being unduly aggressive. Like, why would you do that? And I should say too, these women came in with their infants and they either breastfed, formula fed, or didn't feed. So they had a rest period. And then, um, we just measured how long and how loud the women blasted back. And so we found that breastfeeding moms blasted back for about (laughs) double as long and double as loud as the formula feeding women. The formula feeding women were a little more aggressive um, than the women who, you know, didn't have a child and that this was actually mediated by their threat perception. So it seemed like the women who um, were breastfeeding, it, it decreases basically sympathetic nervous activity. So you can think about your fight or flight system. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's basically facilitating 
women have a much lower threshold for, they're much more likely to flight rather than fight. And what it seems to be moderated by is kind of their level of fear or autonomic arousal. Mm -hmm. Um, But what breastfeeding seemed to do is decrease kind of a woman's um, blood pressure during the competition and that this decrease in blood pressure, if we interpret it as, let's say, stress reactivity, was related to more aggression. So breastfeeding moms were cool, calm, and aggressive, whereas formula feeding moms and nulliparous women were stressed and less aggressive. So stress seemed to be actually inhibiting women's aggression. Mm. Um, And this is a specific type of aggression, right? So this is defensive aggression, whether or not you're going to freeze or flight. um, Fear can actually be an inhibitor for fighting back, I think. By the way, why do why do they call it the sympathetic response? <laughs> the stress response is sympathetic response. It's so weird and confusing. I just want to make sure that my audience knows that we're talking about the stress response here. That's and so, then it's parasympathetic, right? Yeah. The, what dials down the hormones and yep. everything. Um, anyway, it, no, just, I don't just know why doctors just really want to make our lives miserable <laughs> and make their <laughs> yeah, med yeah. students, you know, stressed. <laughs> right. Um, so, so that, so this could be in, in our modern age where we don't necessarily need aggression as much as we used to. This might be one of the, one of the perhaps few positive things of, of formula feeding is, is that there's maybe less aggression in the world. Could you talk a little bit about maybe what some of the negative effects of our modern kind of um, breastfeeding culture might be having on, on people perhaps, or, or let's not say negative, let's just say effects, different differences that um, might possibly be having. That's interesting. I mean, first, let me say, I don't think it's necessarily a negative, right? It's not like these breastfeeding moms are going to go get in bar fights. It's not like, you know, but maybe if you, (laughs) maybe if you stole their parking space or something, you know, or if, if you, um, you know, are a strange man walking towards her in the middle of the night with her infant, you could potentially see like more aggressive behavior. So I think it's probably, you're right, not really needed anymore. Um, it is um, probably, you know, wouldn't make, I don't know if it would make that much difference in humans, um, I think. Um, but in terms of the differences, um, I usually look at most of the things I look at with regards to the psychological effects um, that are different between breastfeeding and formula feeding women. I would argue that breastfeeding moms get a lot of benefits and I would say some of the more unknown ones are stress reactivity, right? So breastfeeding moms just generally report lower levels of stress. They have lower levels of stress reactivity, cortisol levels in kind of when you really stress them out and ask them to public speech, do a public speech like this one. Um, and, uh, you know, recite numbers backwards. They're not, they don't show as big of a response to that. Hmm. Also a much, so I, I should, yeah. so breastfeeding women are the, are the best guests for my podcast is what, is what you're yeah, saying. I think okay. so. Um, but another thing that's really cool, uh, just a bunch of adaptations that go along with breastfeeding. It's not like, you know, this is evolution's first rodeo with breastfeeding. It's had a lot of time to kind of time match a lot of different adaptations that help moms facilitate. So think about what changes when you have a baby. 
if you don't know, um, basically your sleep is totally disrupted because you have to feed this infant all through the night. So the nice thing about breastfeeding is prolactin actually helps you get double the amount of slow wave sleep and you go into kind of REM sleep faster. So yeah, these moms are waking up, but they're able to kind of get the rest and recovery that their brain needs during lactation. So you think about a formula feeding mom, she's waking up too, but she's not getting that benefit. Um, and I think that's a main thing. I mean, the effects of breastfeeding on maternal behavior, I think are pretty overblown. Um, I have some of the first experimental evidence suggesting that if you take like a woman who's already breastfeeding and formula feeding, randomly assign her to breastfeeding the lab or formula feed this, the breastfeeding mom, will get a burst of prolactin and oxytocin. The formula feeding woman presumably won't. And we did find higher levels of prolactin, at least in the breastfeeding moms. They were slightly more sensitive to their infant's needs, but the effect was small. And, you know, I, I think too, um, there, in terms of the longitudinal studies have been done, there's certainly no evidence to suggest that formula fed infants are any less bonded to their parent. I mean, mm. what adaptation would that be? Oh, it's not like infants have like a lot of other choices. Like, oh, okay. So my mom doesn't care about me. Let me just, you know, bond with someone else's mom. They can't like, so they're going to bond and they're going to bond and they're going to bond. There's mm. some slight evidence that breastfeeding enhances maternal bonding. But I do think that more women who are more interested in their babies and more bonded with their babies are also more likely to breastfeed. So I think that's a major driving factor. So a lot of like the CDC's website will tell you that breastfeeding promotes bonding, but, um, and women report that, but empirical evidence is at least lacking. Um, so I think there's like mommy wars going on, arguing if breastfeeding is like really necessary. Certainly it's a feminist issue, right? Cause you have to breastfeed for, all these months where you've just carried this infant, it's, it really hinders your ability. You know, it's hard to work. It's hard to have freedom. You don't kind of get your body back, quote unquote. Um, so, you know, there, I think there's reason to really look at the costs and the benefits to lactation. Mm. Certainly in terms of time, it's incredibly intensive. Breastfeeding uh, for the first three months, at least in my experience, really sucked. It was hard because the dad couldn't like formula feed. So it's not like he could take a shift during the night. It was all on me. It was really tough. Um, So I think that I'm not a crazy, like every woman has to breastfeed, breastfed babies, you know, formula fed babies are going to be, you know, have these, you know, there's some evidence, but the effects are, you know, reasonable and they're not crazy. It's not like, you know, if you don't breastfeed, you and your baby are going to be damned health wise. Yeah. Your life yeah some i mean it is it's a it's a part of the kind of paleo kick that mm-hmm. ever everyone is on which definitely has it's like did it's like oh our ancestors <laughs> did a lot of overhead squats did they are you sure about that as i'm pretty sure they didn't lift anything like that in the most awkward position i've ever seen right. and then they're like oh we don't do like curls and stuff that's just to make your biceps look big. like who lifts things like this? Well, like everybody all the mm-hmm. time to carry things. And, and, yeah. Um, so, so yeah. So, so maybe that that's interesting. Cause I, I also came in here today being like, 
yeah, women need to breastfeed more often, and maybe maybe formula is is there um is there a, a nutritional difference? Oh my god, yes. Right. So, and I think that's probably. I mean, so so what about using breast pumps? Then is there going to be much of a difference between if you're using like a, a breast pump and? Um, we don't necessarily know. I mean, my gut reaction is. Probably not really. However, there's incredible amounts of nuances in milk. So it it carries antibodies from the mom's immune system to the infant. So mom's immune system is much more developed than her infants so that she's a much more powerful, much more able to fight diseases. So there's some evidence that lactating moms actually have overactive immune systems. So if they they get exposed to a pathogen, they're able to through kind of their, um, adaptive immune system through all these really cool cells, transfer them to the infant and actually train their immune system to start fighting some of these things that they're going to be exposed to. So that's something we're not a hundred percent sure, like that we don't know if freezing affects those, the ability of those cells, mm. but certainly, and also microbiome stuff. There's amazing um, research again by Katie Hind, um, who's looking at basically the amount of um, the amount type and quality, I guess you could say of different types of microbes in the breast milk. So we don't know like how, for example, pumping into a non-sterile container um, affects the ability of these microbes to survive or the Mm. types of microbes that survive and then also freezing them obviously might have a big effect. So in that way, pumping is not necessarily um, exactly the same, but it's pretty darn great. I think it's a wonderful compromise. Oh yeah. What am I supposed to do? Right. I'm an academic. I've just spent like, you know, years getting my PhD. I just got a tenure track job. What should I do? Like just throw all that away because I need to be home, you know, and breastfeed all the time. I know there's some women who do that, but for me, I, you know, had to pump and it's not fun. It's not great, but it was a way for me to, you know, ensure that my infant and was going to get some of the very, I mean, the health benefits of breastfeeding are, are much more well-established. So, um, there's some reason research to suggest that certainly it lowers the risk, um, for obesity, especially in certain high risk infants. Um, it, uh, has been associated with higher levels of IQ, but that's a really small, um, effects. Higher levels of what? IQ, intelligence, and just better nutrition and generally right is. So, um, and if you look at like the main, like if you look at the ingredients and formula, just take a look. It's like cow's milk with some cornstarch and some sugar, basically some high fructose corn syrup sometimes. So and, it's made by McDonald's. And then some, yeah, and then some vitamins, you know what I mean? Right. So awesome. It certainly doesn't seem, I mean, I think eventually we'll have the capacity to make this like powdered, like we'll just be able to eat pills instead of, you know, nutrition pills instead of having full meals or whatever, like a hundred years from now or something, Maybe. something like that. Although, we're, we're a long ways off. I think if we're going to do that, we need to have different formula for different times of the day. 
because it's going to have different levels of cortisol, which mm. is going to regulate the infant's diurnal rhythm. It needs to like, you need to have a personalized milk. Like if you're at the bottom of the totem pole, let's say that this effect in recent macaques, you know, holds up. Do you really want like what level of glucocorticoids should we include? Mm -hmm. Um, there's oxytocin in breast milk too. And it seems like, um, at least for cortisol and for, there's some evidence in rodents of oxytocin receptors, like come forth in, in the tummy so that you can actually process these hormones. And then we lose them when we're weaned. So these, these babies are expecting these hormones. Like I was saying, they, they kind of, they're expecting them. And so right. we don't really know basically what there's not cortisol in formula. There's just none. I mean, some mm -hmm. plant-based glucocorticoids, but it's like trace levels. So, um, I don't know if we could ever, what's great about breastfeeding, it basically maps the mom's kind of sleep schedule, the mom's stress level to the infant, giving that infant information about their specific mom, about her specific lifestyle about her specific patterns so that they can respond. They can sleep at the same time the mom does and they can wake at the same time. You know, so I don't know if we're ever going to get there. We might. Well, I think eventually 500 years, give me 500 years. I think in so, 500 years, uh, everyone's just going to be like breastfeeding because we'll, it's just the best. Really? Mm -hmm. I think we're going to be robots. So we'll see. Um, we'll see if, if they can download our well, brains. As long as they're lactating robots, I'm in. They have to be lactating. Um, so, well, I guess, so this is, this is a very good pro paleo point, uh, which is to say that this is how complicated trying to alter what evolution has spent a very, very long time doing. And we don't, we just simply don't fully understand. And, Certainly, this this paleo paleo ish kind of outlook is more of a like better safe than sorry. We don't know just yet, so maybe we should just kind of keep on doing what we've been built for until mm -hmm. we figure out what kind of biohacks or whatever actually mm -hmm. work. Uh, I which think we're that's a, long a really ways off from. healthy way of thinking about it. I think. Some people just get really dogmatic and probably the research isn't really there yet to, mm -hmm. you know, certainly we know that smoking is bad. And I think that's probably, you know, fair to be dogmatic about that. Or we know we have more evidence to suggest that organic foods are probably better for you. So there's more evidence to be dogmatic about that than uh, some of these yeah. other things that we're well, not. If, if, I don't think anyone should be dogmatic. If the thing that's labeled but, organic is actually right. organic, ah, life. Um, so, and a, a quick side thing before we start wrapping up and I want to get into one more big chunk of your, uh, research. Um, one slightly off topic, um, uh, we were talking about prolactin making sleep. Um, what was it? The more slow wave sleep. So more REM sleep. Do they put that in like sleeping pills or anything like that or can you is this another thing that i can huff like is this can you I don't want to huff this so if you, you huff too much basically you'll start lactating so men actually <laughs> have the same milk ducts as women you just have a lot less so oh, okay. some like men who get hyperprolactemia so they have just have tight sun suns and prolactin you're gonna start lactating so <laughs> great sleep drippy nipples <laughs> yeah that's um, right all right um <laughs> Interesting. So before before we get into the last little thing, um, this this would be a good point. Each week, I have uh, my guest. 
plug a nonprofit of their choice. So um, I will give you a minute. Were you looking up something? Are you ready to go? Go ahead. We can. Ramin can edit this out um, real quick. I'm really bad. Um, thank you, Ramin. Okay. Yeah, that's my producer's. All name. right. I'm going to plug a kid again, a kid again, which is basically a charitable organization, a lot like the Make a Wish Foundation, that helps um, give uh, terminally ill kids or just kids who've been chronically sick for a long time just a break from the illness so cheer them up and give them a good day it's wonderful you know what's what's odd i was talking about how much i don't like kids earlier but i like sick kids for some (laughs) reason like i want to help sick kids but that's like exactly uh, the opposite of the type of thing you should be doing (laughs) they're pathogen ridden and yeah, I mean, I, maybe I don't see them as as much of a threat to me or something like Interesting. that. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Mm, I wonder I, what Freud would not, say it's about not that. that. Yeah. Hmm. Well, Freud was wrong about a whole bunch of stuff, but I guess he was, he didn't he did some all right things. Um, well, I, I guess he was right with a lot of kids' stuff. Not so much. He, he, I don't know about he did that. A lot of, well, let's not do a Freud debate right now. No. Um, weird, weird sex ideas. Um, and I am biased against some of his ideas. Um, all right. Back to your ideas. The main thing I wanted to close by talking to you about um, is postmortem depression. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about your work on postpartum depression? Yes. So postpartum depression. Oh, was that, when I'm, am I saying that wrong? Yeah. How do you say it? You're saying it right. Postpartum depression. Postpartum depression. Mm-hmm. What was that? I was saying postmortem. That's like uh, after death, isn't well, it? Well, it's kind of like moms are martyrs sometimes. I yeah, think yeah. that's part of it. Postpartum. Okay. I'm yeah. Just, so my, my, my words aren't coming out right today. It's basically, um, so women are twice as likely mm-hmm. as men to suffer from anxiety disorders and depression. And um, not that it's not common in general for the population. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but this their risk for these kind of mood disorders seems to be much higher during pregnancy, but especially um, postpartum as well. So postpartum is just like the first year or the first six months after she gives birth. And one of the thoughts of that is kind of the hormone, the uh, hormone withdrawal hypothesis, basically like all these hormones go up. So you're thinking about cortisol, cortisol goes up a ton, but also, um, uh, the placenta produces all these hormones too. So like corticotropin releasing hormone, it's this crazy hormone that basically activates the mom's HPA axis and does all these things to the mom's brain to stimulate labor, to stimulate their growth. Um, it's been called the placental clock. Anyway, some of my research and other people's has shown that basically moms who are exposed to higher levels or they their um their corticotropin releasing hormone increases more during pregnancy and then you know obviously when the baby's born those levels crash and so moms who the higher they go and the harder they fall mm. is predicting the moms who get depression um postpartum but also um I think that it's the most common childbearing related illness. So as many as one in five women get it in the U.S. in the first year. And I have some, I need to do some publications, but I need to get some stuff out. But I did a meta-analysis of 320 studies of over 
200,000 women and looked at kind of rates in different cultures. And it's amazing the variability. So in some cultures, rates are as high as 30 or 40 percent like Brazil and um, South Africa, these really impoverished situations where moms are really struggling. Um, and in other cultures, it's very low, like Japan and Sweden. Um, so it does seem to really be not only kind of these, have these biology factors, but really biology factors and social factors, like inequality, um, like father support, like violence um, can really raise women's risk as well, possibly through some of these stress hormones, right? It's not like they're different necessarily explanations or different causes of the same thing. These things, stress may be acting through um, some of these biological pathways in pregnancy. Um, and some of my research suggests that um, social support from family can actually help buffer women against these deleterious increases in CRH over the course of pregnancy. So, um, it's a really complex disorder. It's a really common disorder. And I think that, um, it deserves our attention. So I'm curious when, when there, when, when you say the cultural differences, uh, so they're sending out like surveys, I imagine is a lot of where, how, how are they gathering yeah. this information? Because here, here's why I'm asking is, it seems like there's a bit of a stigma that comes along with postpartum depression. Oh, yeah. And I'm wondering if, if in some places, in some culture, if it's totally. actually underreported. Yeah. Absolutely. Because mothers don't want to, like, it's, I think some mothers might feel bad about saying, like, I got depressed when my baby was born. Totally. Especially, I mean, how. Is this common knowledge in in a lot of cultures? I'm not even sure it's common knowledge no. in America, really. That this so is so they a common measure thing. it. So you're absolutely right about cultural differences and like reporting, and even the symptoms of depression tend to be a little different. Like for example, in Asian cultures, I mean that's a very big mess, you know, generalization I'm making there. But mm -hmm. they tend to present um, when they're depressed with more somatic symptoms, like I have back aches, and you know. Um, fatigue and these kind of symptoms, whereas in the U.S. it's more about the mental symptoms. So, you know, I don't have any motivation and I feel sad all the time and these kind of things. So some of our measures that we've developed for depression in the West maybe aren't as um, valid. So that may be some of the reason why we're seeing this variation. But I'm finding that a lot of other things are predicting it, at least, you know, so things that wouldn't necessarily co-vary with um, what we're talking about. Certainly that's a piece of the puzzle. Um, but like, for example, omega-3 fatty acid consumption. So the level of seafood that a culture eats predicts postpartum depression risk. In what direction? Omega-3s are protective. Mm. Mm -hmm. So cultures that eat more seafood tend to have lower rates of depression. That was found, gosh, I don't know if I say his name, Hablin, like a long time ago. But in a data set that I'm basically it's under review right now. So we'll see if it gets published. I've been able to replicate that with a much, much, much larger sample. Um, so that's neat. Um, what, what about some supplements? Omega-3 supplements. So that is where the weakness in the data. So they're, they're doing some randomized control trials now looking at whether or not omega-3 fatty acid supplements over the course of pregnancy can protect against postpartum depression. And some very small trials are finding some benefits. Other larger trials have not found those effects. Um, 
My personal take, because you're asking me mm-hmm. on this, is that um, the levels of supplementation that they're giving these moms are too little too late. So in pregnancy, most of the stores of omega-3 fatty acids that women are drawing from are going to be stores she's already put on. Fat she's already distributed, usually around the buttocks and not around the waist. Mm. Um, So that is, I think, um, one of the reasons why. And also supplements don't seem to translate as well um, to the body. So it seems like eating salmon or these other types of seafood is a better predictor of a woman's omega-3 fatty acid stores than the levels they're getting from like a tablet. Mm -hmm. And if you think about kind of, you know, what paleo suggests is you want to have like a good omega-3 to omega-6 fatty acid ratio because omega-6s can actually block the actions of, or I don't, that I'm, I'm getting in above my head, but my understanding is that people with that eat more omega-6 fatty acids, even if they are eating uh, some omega-3s or they're taking supplements, those omega-3s are not going to be kind of as effective. So you really want to look at the ratio. So, you know, in these cultures where seafood makes up a big proportion of the calories, not only are they getting omega-3s, but those omega-6 fatty acids they'd otherwise be eating are not, they're not getting. So um, I think that's part of the problem is if we're really trying to increase, decrease the risk of postpartum depression through omega-3 fatty acids, you'd want to intervene much sooner and much more aggressively. So like the, the year before a woman has an infant or thinking about getting pregnant, just bone up on the salmon. I think that might be more effective now. I may be wrong. Hmm. Um, and well, quick before I, I I have a few other uh, questions along the same line, but, uh, just for clarification, is there a difference in, um, um, the effect of, I, I mean, there's obviously a difference in, in depression between what's causing it, but, but is there a difference in uh, postpartum depression and just regular old depression in, in terms of how it actually feels? We don't know. Okay. We don't know. So there's some really old research on that. Um, some research, um, by Dr. Molly Fox, who's an awesome, soon-to-be UCLA faculty member in anthropology. That would probably be a really interesting person to talk to. She's doing some work on that right now. Um, And we don't know. She's finding some differences, but I don't want to, like, say anything. Um, But we don't know. And um, certainly, at least in terms of, you know, the DSM or kind of the American Psychiatry Association, I think... APA, um, they don't differentiate it. So it's different in time point and it's not different in kind. So the symptoms are very similar. Um, it's just a very unique context. So there probably are different predictors certainly than depression generally. Um, but there may be a lot of the same factors. So omega threes have also been implicated in depression generally, right? So they tend to be protective as well, at least as a form of treatment. My understanding is that it's not really helpful for prevention, Um, but I am not an expert on depression regularly. I study moms and babies. So, um, that's a really good question that we don't know the answer to. Do you know if, uh, postpartum depression is more common now than it was or, or if it is in any studied, um, hunter gatherer societies? I'm laughing at this question because yeah, so that really sucks. So we can't, we don't know. 
So I did some work trying to figure that out. So I wrote this paper basically asking the question, and it's just a review paper, asking whether postpartum depression is a disease of civilization. So just like, you know, obesity is a disease of civilization right. that's a byproduct of the fact that we have adaptations to love salty foods and fatty foods um, because when we got those foods, it's amazing. We should gorge ourselves when we're living hand to mouth. But today when there's a McDonald's on every corner, that's not so good, right? So looking at that postpartum depression from that perspective, right, a mom's experience today is so different than what it would have been even a couple hundred years ago. So women aren't breastfeeding, right? Um, women are much more, uh, have much lower levels of omega-3 fatty acids. Moms are much more sedentary. Um, moms don't have, they, we tend to, because of our modern economics, live a, you know far away from our family. And humans, um, according to Sarah Blaffer Hurdy, who's an amazing researcher, are what she calls cooperative breeders. And I think other people have used the term too, but she really popularized the idea in humans, suggesting that like moms, two people is not enough. A mom and a dad should not be raising a kid alone. It's just too much. Like it's crazy. And we need to have other people around ants siblings, you know, and we're having less kids too. So it's like, you don't even like get the the help from, you know, the neighbor or, or your own child to help you raise your infant. Um, so, and the expectations for parenting are just so high. Like we, we, part of it is we have all our eggs in these few baskets because we're having less children. So they got to succeed. Right. Um, but it's just very like socially intense and the world is so competitive because there's so many more people that it's really pushing. Like the parenting has to be super intense. So all of these things that I mentioned, omega-3 fatty acid deficiency, lower rates of breastfeeding, lower rates of exercise, um, and then lower rates of social support, vitamin D too, probably vitamin right? D. Yeah. I wrote about that too. I forgot about it. Um, all these things are kind of novel. So, um, and they're all related to postpartum depression. Hmm. So we don't know. I can't answer the question though, of whether or not it's higher or lower. So I did, I looked in the human relation area file. It's basically, I think like 64, maybe it's less cultures that are supposed to be kind of representative of the variation of hunter gatherer lifestyles that we would have lived in. So there's a lot of variation in hunter gatherer lifestyles, but it's supposed to be kind of this anthropological map of what human, um, what the human environment looked like years and years ago. And I found exactly two in this, um, two references to any type of postpartum depression, um, and one was a clear case of postpartum psychosis, which is incredibly rare. Um, and it's not postpartum depression. Um, and another, one other basically Western doctor being like, she's hysterical. She's just not. So there's really not, um, Ed Hagen, um, and Clark Barrett have done some work. Gosh, I forget the name, the culture they did it with. Um, but they've shown that the moms generally like, you know, report postpartum sadness and postpartum, this and that, but there's no way for me to kind of tell whether or not rates are lower or higher. There's some evidence that depression generally is increasing and all these same factors are related to depression generally. So that's a paper I cited in my paper, basically showing like increases in depression. We don't know, just like autism. We don't know if just diagnosis is increasing. We don't know if the stigma is decreasing, but I just thought it was an interesting, it might be interesting to point out that a lot of these modern factors are associated with higher rates. Hmm. 
Um, well, I, now I have an idea for my new business, which is CrossFit Moms. Oh. And it's, uh, it's like an open air. Um, it's just moms come in and they breastfeed <laughs> like on a treadmill. Le- they burn a lot more calories. It's a great idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, all there right. We go. Well, we'll we'll partner in that, and I'll yeah. take seventy percent of the profits. Um, seventy percent. All right, you are putting up all the upfront money then. Okay. Um, deal's a deal. Jennifer Hun Holbrook, everybody, thank you so much for joining me, Jennifer Jen. Um, and <laughs> why did I just get, it, it was, uh, I was looking at your name, Jennifer, and then you asked me to call you Jen. And then I just loved this ending, which sometimes happens. Um, but, uh, my, <laughs> my listeners are, usually I flub it right in the beginning and then I can just re-record. And then sometimes I just make things slightly awkward toward the end. So thanks for hanging in there, Jen. Um, And thank you, listeners, for uh, being such curious people and um, downloading and rating and writing nice reviews. And we'll talk to you next week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I'm very excited for next week's guest. I told you guys um, uh, a while back that many people had asked for more psychedelic talk on the show, which I'm um, I guess kind of known for on being a guest on other podcasts and, but I, I haven't really had an actual like scientist on the show talking about psychedelics yet, but, um, the coming up next week, I'm, I'll be talking with, um, I haven't recorded this yet, so I'm not sure exactly what we're going to be talking about, but I'm going to be talking with Cole Marta, who is, um, the, it, it does a lot of work with, um, therapy with MDMA and ketamine and helping people with PTSD and that sort of thing. And is also a, a supervisor with the Zendo project, which is psychedelic first aid for festivals and events. So they basically, if someone's having a bad trip, they try to um, give them a supportive environment and educate them and transform the difficult experience into an experience for learning and growth, um, that sort of thing. So we're going to be talking a lot about that next week. So yeah, I'm excited. I'm I'm going to be doing, um, I'm going to be getting a few more guests coming up talking about psychedelics as well. So yeah, I'm excited about that. I'm going to space them out a little bit so this doesn't turn into. Uh, podcast all about psychedelics um, or get labeled as that but um, anyway it's really fantastic research I'm very interested in learning more so looking forward to that and I'll talk with you guys next week say uh seinfeld was on an island and he was blowing boris karloff what would it what would that be like (laughs) it might go something like this oh mr karloff i loved you and frankenstein and i love giving you a blowjob why mr seinfeld i'd love having you fuck 